0: the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here Mm. in the United States, Uh, the dominion voting systems, uh, the smartmatic technology software were created in villains in Venezuela Uh at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election after one constitutional referendum came out the way he did not want it to come
1: out. Right, and then 10 years later, after he died, he stole the election for Donald well, Trump. No, stole it from Donald Trump. Right. He stole it for Joe Biden. It's I all chair. so confusing. How I'll get <laughs> but blame us it's my fault right, here I am, it's and I couldn't be prouder from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lanchester, Pennsylvania on W News. The uh, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet, so on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burton Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing, Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. From bradblog.com, I should note where it is now official. We are now officially in our. Twentieth year. What? Twentieth year of independent investigative journalism, blogging, broadcasting, troublemaking, and muckraking. So just a quick note of thanks to everyone from our donors and readers and listeners uh, and guest bloggers and guest hosts who have made it all possible over the years, including, yes, all of our affiliates coast to coast and around the globe. It is kind of stunning that uh, with our 19th anniversary now, Uh, We are now in our 20th year, especially for what originally began back in 2004 as a bit of a lark to sort of fill some free time after I had left a different project I had been working on for about five years. So uh, congrats to you as well, Desi Doyen, (laughs) for all of your years of service.
0: Yeah, wow. It's been a long time.
1: Congrats, or my apologies, depending on <laughs> how I you or wish both. to look at it. Uh, I should note that as a managing editor and the co-host of our twice weekly Green News Report radio segment, the GNR itself is coming on a, up on a uh, anniversary. I think on its 14th anniversary very soon, Desiree. Yes,
0: yes. So you I know. will be in
1: your 15th year of that. Yep,
0: yep, yep, yep.
1: I shared a few thoughts today on our 20th. Uh, Year Now at bradblog.com today it's at the top of the blog if you want to check it out Uh, noting that you know i'm not much of a look backer uh, but this landmark actually gave me some reason to look back at just a few of the pretty huge news stories that we've broken over the years at bradblog.com and on this show Uh, if only By way of looking forward from where we are now, a bunch of our exclusive stories over the years have, uh, particularly since the 2020 election, become suddenly relevant in a whole bunch of interesting ways. Not the least of which is the multi billion dollar defamation lawsuits now filed against GOP voter fraud fraudsters like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Fox News and the other fake right wing news outlets. Thanks to their false claims about voting machine companies like Dominion and Smartmatic as based on bastardized versions of exclusive stories that I have broken over the years at the Brad blog, including the very real story about concerns regarding Hugo Chavez and Venezuela um, in uh, regarding some U.S. voting system companies many, many years ago. But as it turns out, those knuckleheads, folks like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, et cetera, they twisted some of my very accurate reporting on that from 2008 through 2010 or so into fake news, essentially, in 2020, long after Hugo Chavez had been very much dead. In any event, uh, you know, and yet they still cited my work and now they are getting sued for something that I never got sued for because, you know, I reported it accurately. Yeah, I think time. that that's
0: a pretty key distinction there. The people who made the, the bastardized conclusions and took them to court are being sued and you are not.
1: Not yet. We'll see how today goes. Uh, in any event, uh, you can check out uh, that story, some thoughts on, on looking forward and back at the Brad blog pinned at the top of Bradblog.com. And thank you all again uh, to all of our supporters who have helped us remain independent over all of these years, supported only by listeners and readers and therefore accountable to no one other than you. Thank you. Okay. speaking of 2020 and accountability for those liars and con artists like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and the other attorneys who seem to have forgotten their responsibilities as members of the bar, as officers of the court. In the various states in which they are uh, uh, licensed uh, uh, to, uh, to practice law. We've been uh, reporting on this program and at the Brad Blog since late 2020 about the need for sanctions and possible disbarment for those attorneys who played along with Donald Trump's phony, sore loser, evidence-free claim that the 2020 presidential election was somehow stolen from him our own longtime legal analyst at Bradblog.com, the now largely retired attorney, Ernest A. Canning. He wrote about the need for holding attorneys who filed false lawsuits and made false public claims about the 2020 election accountable. Uh, since He's been writing about it since at least December of 2020. For example, in his article at the time headlined, Sanctions warranted for frivolous attempts to steal election by ethically challenged attorneys, which included the sub headline deception repeatedly rejected meritless claims, and two beyond the pale eleventh hour lawsuits justify legal discipline, perhaps even disbarment well. I think he was on to something pretty early there. Since then, we have seen a number of actions to hold the con man Donald Trump's con artist attorneys to account, even if it appears to be a maddeningly slow process at times. For example, in August of 2021. As Reuters reported at the time, a U.S. judge has sanctioned Sidney Powell and other lawyers who sued in Michigan to overturn Democratic President Joe Biden's election victory over Donald Trump and suggested they might deserve to lose their law licenses. You think? In a highly anticipated written ruling, U.S. District Judge Linda Parker in Detroit said the pro-Trump lawyers, including Powell and prominent litigator Lynn Wood should have investigated the Republican former president's voter fraud claims more carefully or at all before filing what Parker called a, quote, frivolous lawsuit. Parker, who dismissed the Michigan suit in December of 2020, formally requested back in August of 2021 that disciplinary bodies investigate whether the pro-Trump lawyers should, in fact, have their licenses revoked. Quote, this lawsuit represents a historic and profound abuse of the judicial process, Judge Parker said in her decision at the time. As The New York Times reported on Judge Parker's sanctions, the Michigan lawsuit in question was one of four legal actions filed in late November of 2020, collectively known as the Kraken suits that Ms. Powell filed in courts around the country, claiming that tabulation machines by Dominion voting systems were tampered with by a bizarre set of characters such as financier George Soros or Venezuelan intelligence agents. In the suit, she complained without merit that those conspirators began a complicated, covert plot to flip votes from President Donald Trump to his opponent, Joseph Biden Jr. Parker's order came about a month after a marathon hearing during which she repeatedly pressed Powell and her colleagues, about how or even whether they had verified the statements of witnesses who filed sworn statements making claims of widespread fraud and tampering with voting machines. Several times, Judge Parker expressed astonishment at the lawyers' answers, the lawyers' answers, telling them they had a responsibility to perform, quote, minimal due diligence and calling some of the lawsuit's claims fantastical. In her decision, Judge Parker accused Powell, who is based in Dallas, and Lynn Wood, who is based in Atlanta, of abusing, quote, the well-established rules of litigation by making claims that were backed by neither the law nor evidence, but were instead marked by, quote, speculation, conjecture and unwarranted suspicion. This case was never about fraud, Judge Parker wrote at the time. It was about undermining the people's faith in our democracy, and debasing the judicial process to do so. These are not random folks. These are not callers uh, to the broadcast here calling in with thoughts. These are attorneys. These are lawyers, members of the bar who take an oath to serve as officers of the court, going into court, filing these lawsuits all over the country, making these, well, making these claims that turn out to be preposterous claims because they never bothered to actually vet them before using them in their legal filings. Another example, in December of this past year, more than two years after Trump and his attorneys Uh, There are many failed plots to steal the presidential election for the American people, as reported by Politico. This would be last month. A bar uh, bar discipline committee in Washington, D.C., has concluded that Rudy Giuliani violated at least one professional rule in his efforts to help former President Donald Trump challenge the results of the 2020 election. Now, to be clear, Giuliani didn't try to, quote, help the former president challenge the results of the 2020 election as Politico misreports it there. In fact, Giuliani and others tried to help former President Donald Trump steal the 2020 presidential election. Clear reporting makes a difference, and you can bet your bottom dollar if the situation had been reversed and a Democrat did anything even close to what Donald Trump did in 2020, well, the headlines would be about that Democrat attempting to steal a presidential election. You can go back to 2000, if you don't believe me, and look at what they said about Al Gore at the time, who did not steal or even try to that 2000 election. But I digress. As Politico continues, the uh, preliminary finding last month by the panel could result in the suspension or loss of Giuliani's license. The three-member disciplinary committee agreed that His handling of litigation in Pennsylvania crossed ethical lines. Their finding came after a week of testimony by Giuliani in his own defense. The D.C. Bar Counsel, Phil Fox, argued for Giuliani's punishment, noting, quote, Mr. Giuliani has testified on several occasions that he believes there was a conspiracy before Fox went on to add, well, there was a conspiracy and Rudy Giuliani was the head of it. Fox's case relied on Giuliani's rushed effort to file lawsuits to throw out hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvania votes without any evidence of election fraud. Giuliani testified about his hurried drive to Pennsylvania on November 4 in a car with former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi. Oh, that must have been nice for her. Uh, But they sped down there to challenge the Pennsylvania election results and Yes, to begin spreading discredited claims that the election had been stolen. Fox said the panel should disbar Rudy Giuliani for his conduct in D.C. Now, to my knowledge, Bondi, again, the uh, former uh, Florida's attorney general, Pam Bondi, to my knowledge, uh, she has yet to be held accountable at all for her part in these fraudulent schemes. While Giuliani's license has been suspended during the disciplinary action, he has yet to be fully disbarred, to my knowledge. Whatever penalties are finally assessed will undoubtedly be tested then by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And just last week, as we reported on this program, a federal judge in South Florida slapped nearly $1 million in legal sanctions on Donald Trump. And one of his new attorneys, a woman by the name of Alina Habba, in response to a ridiculous lawsuit that Trump filed against Hillary Clinton, James Comey and more than two dozen other defendants, including many of his perceived enemies at the FBI and in Congress, for what his lawsuit described as, quote, an orchestrated a malicious conspiracy. To disseminate patently false and injurious information about Donald J. Trump and his campaign, all in the hopes of destroying his life, his political career and rigging the 2016 presidential election in favor of Hillary Clinton. Yes, the 2016 election that Donald Trump actually won. U.S. District Court Judge Donald Middlebrooks last week, who had dismissed with prejudice the lawsuit as frivolous earlier last year, spent 46 pages explaining how ridiculous the suit was, including the fact that there was no actual evidence to support any of Trump's charges made in this complaint. And for that matter... Trump and his attorney failed to include any actual, you know, allegations of violations of law in their complaint, which the judge was kind enough to let them file twice, given that the same deficiencies were in the very first attempt at filing that lawsuit. Judge Middlebrook's ordered uh, his, his order last week opened this way, quote, This case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evident from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it.
0: Kind of a key word there.
1: Yes. Uh, he says, intended for a political purpose, none of the counts of the amended complaint stated a cognizable legal claim. 31 individuals and entities were needlessly harmed in order to dishonestly advance a political narrative, wrote the judge. A continuing pattern of misuse of the courts by Mr. Trump and his lawyers undermines the rule of law, portrays judges as partisans and diverts resources from those who have actually suffered legal harm. In that order, perhaps most amusingly, while the judge ordered Trump and his attorney, Alina Haba, and her law firm to pay nearly one million dollars to the defendants at attorney's fees. The largest single recipient of that money would be, well, a single payment of one hundred and seventy two thousand dollars that Trump and his attorney are ordered now to pay to his greatest nemesis, Hillary Clinton. Nonetheless... While that's enjoyable, for now, the attorney Habba is apparently allowed to continue to practice law, to retain her license. But late last week, there was yet another new chapter in this story. Finally, as announced by the State Bar of California out here, another corrupt Trump attorney who was central, very central to the Trump incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol over two years ago now he will finally face disciplinary action and perhaps disbarment out here in the Golden State. John Eastman, the previously little-known right-wing attorney who trumped up at least two schemes to allow Republicans to try and steal the 2020 presidential election on January 6, 2021. Well, Eastman has become much more famous since that day, but he has yet to face any real accountability for his corrupt actions. Those days may be coming to an end with the announcement late last week by the State Bar of California. That story, those details, and one of the attorneys who has been long calling for penalties and other accountability for Donald Trump's band of corrupt lawyers, uh, legal professor, uh, former legal professor, former Utah Assistant Attorney General Michael Teeter of the 65 Project. He joins us live next to discuss the new legal proceedings against Eastman and why all of this seems to be taking so damn long. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: Did
3: Dr. Eastman admit in front of the president that his proposal would violate the Electoral Count Act?
1: Um, Mr. Eastman acknowledged that that was the case, but he thought that we could do so because in his view, the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional and his view was that the court simply wouldn't get involved. They would invoke the political question doctrine um, and therefore we could have some comfort proceeding uh, with that path. Now
2: the planning...
1: Well, now we know what it was. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. However, their plan did not work, thankfully. In case you were wondering if our uh, corporate media learned anything from the last time they tripped over themselves to help Donald Trump win an election back in 2016, the weekend's news headlines might answer that question. Despite myriad criminal charges that the disgraced former president is likely to face within the coming months at both the state and federal level. And we've got some fresh news today on more criminal trouble and yet another state for Trump today, if I can get to it later this hour. Despite all of that, Trump's hopes of declaring his candidacy for 2024 to distract from his legal woes sort of seems to be working, at least to some extent. Trump gave remarks over the uh, at at uh, GOP gatherings in two early primary states over the weekend: New Hampshire and South Carolina. And the coverage felt unsurprisingly familiar. Just some of the uh, business as usual headlines from the Beltway corporate press: ABC News. Trump kicks off presidential campaign in New Hampshire, South Carolina. Axios, Trump, quote, more angry, more committed as he kicks off 2024 campaign. Politico, Trump hits DeSantis. He's a covid skeptic phony. So corporate media business as usual, it seems at the same time, while they're uh, covering, you know, 2024 as if nothing happened in 2020, we are not letting it go. Not by a long shot. Uh, you know, not letting go of our coverage of the need for real accountability, not just for Donald Trump, which I believe is coming, perhaps first in Georgia, then perhaps at the federal level, but also for his cronies who facilitated his lies and his failed attempt to steal our last presidential election, including uh, you know, one of their last des- desperate attempts to do so with the Trump incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6 of 2021. Trump had help there that day, including from a number of licensed attorneys, officers of the court, people like Rudy Giuliani, who called for a, t- quote, trial by combat that day on January 6. During the rally near the White House, Giuliani may soon lose his license to practice law in D.C. and elsewhere. And another attorney who spoke that day, a guy by the name of John Eastman, he may also soon lose his license as well. Eastman is the attorney who took the lead in trying to convince then-Vice President Mike Pence that he could somehow lawfully and or constitutionally steal the election for Donald Trump on January 6th during the joint session of Congress meant to confirm Joe Biden's electoral college victory. Pence could either reject slates of electors from key swing states after Eastman had allegedly helped convince Republicans in several of those states to send false electors, fake electors for Donald Trump to Congress, pretending to be real ones, Or he could just send the matter back to the House of Representatives to sort it all out or Pence could simply declare there was no way to know who won the election at this point. It's so confusing. Send the matter matter back to GOP state legislatures in those swing states. Maybe they wish to declare different electors entirely. All of Eastman's schemes, thankfully, unraveled as Mike Pence also thankfully held his ground and refused to play along that day. Eastman's ploys were an attempt to exploit the vagaries of the Electoral Count Act of 1887, the confusing and poorly written law that nonetheless for the past 130 years or so has been used as the basis for determining how electoral college results are certified during joint sessions of Congress after presidential elections. But as we would later learn uh, via the bipartisan House Select Committee investigating January 6th, even Eastman knew that the schemes he was proposing were likely unlawful. But he figured that, you know, they could get away with it anyway. Eastman is a longtime law professor. He's a member of the bar out here in California. And yet he has yet to pay any real price for his knowing attempt to defraud Congress and the United States and, yes, try to steal an election in the aftermath of 2020. But that may soon be coming to an end. Last, uh, last week, as noted in a press release issued by the State Bar of California, Chief Trial Counsel of the State Bar of California, George, uh, George Cordona, has announced the filing of a notice of disciplinary charges against John Charles Eastman on 11 charges That arise from allegations that Eastman engaged in a course of conduct to plan, promote and assist then-President Trump in executing a strategy unsupported by facts or law to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by obstructing the count of electoral votes of certain states. Specific charges allege that Eastman made false and misleading statements regarding purported election fraud, including statements on January 6, 2021, at a rally in Washington, D.C. that contributed to provoking a crowd to assault and breach the Capitol to intimidate then-Vice President Pence and prevent the electoral count from proceeding. The Office of Chief Trial Counsel intends to seek Eastman's disbarment before the state bar court according to this uh, release from the State Bar of California. In response to the announcement last week, Michael Teeter of the 65 Project noted, quote, today's announcement should serve as a warning to other big lie lawyers that if you violate the rules of professional conduct to try and overturn an election, you will be sanctioned up to and including disbarment. The 65 project describes itself on its website as a bipartisan effort to protect democracy and preserve the rule of law by deterring future attacks on our electoral system. "Quote: We are holding accountable big lie lawyers who bring fraudulent and malicious lawsuits to overturn legitimate election results and working with bar associations to revitalize the disciplinary process so that lawyers, including public officials who subvert democracy, Will be punished. The 65 Project is uh, named, they note, for Donald Trump's 65 failed lawsuits at overturning the 2020 presidential election. Joining us now is Michael Teeter. He is formerly Associate uh, Professor of Law at the University of Utah and Assistant Attorney General. For the state of Utah, formerly. He has litigated before the California Supreme Court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and the U.S. Supreme Court. He now serves as managing director for the 65 Project and as executive director of Facts First, another bipartisan group focusing on countering the use of bad faith, lies, and misinformation, and the abuse of the extensive tools of congressional oversight. Michael Teeter, sir, welcome to the broadcast.
3: Thank you. Good to be
1: here, Brad. Delight- to yeah, delighted to have you here, uh, Michael. I suspect that there will also be plenty to talk about with you, about with you in the months ahead regarding, as you, uh, your uh, group fracks first notes, uh, abuse of congressional oversight. But for today, let's start here. How good is this uh, case? Uh, as noted, there are some 11 charges uh, he now faces. Uh, this case now being brought by the California State Bar's chief trial counsel against John Eastman out here.
3: Well, it's a solid case. There are no disputes about the facts, Quite frankly, everything that John Eastman was doing and engaging in in 2020 and early 2021 has been well documented, not just by his own efforts that were public, but also by the January 6th committee. Uh, Those efforts uh, clearly violate many of the rules of professional conduct that every lawyer swears to abide by. Mm -hmm. So I think the case, there are no slam dunks in this world. I don't think of them as slam dunks, but I think this is a very strong case and the bar would have brought it forward if they didn't think so as well.
1: And, you know, how rare is it to see such cases uh, brought by the state bar against, you know, an officer of the court like Eastman? This is one of the things that drives me crazy about this is, you know, I don't know if you heard my introduction, but these are not, you know, random people, random citizens with concerns or ideas or repeating things they heard on the Internet. These are officers of the court. These are attorneys. How rare is it to, uh, you know, see a case brought by a state bar against someone like Eastman, much less 11 different different charges in a single complaint, whether it's in California or anywhere else, for that matter.
3: It is extraordinarily rare. Um, and part of that is because the disciplinary processes in the states are not set up in a way to protect democracy or protect the abuse of the legal system the way that the Trump organization, was effort uh, their effort was designed to abuse it. And so the bars need to adjust their thinking and their approaches to make sure that they are protecting democracy. But it's extraordinarily rare. Most of the time, these disciplinary matters involve dealing clients' money, hmm. uh, having improper relationships with clients, and so the the bar to be able to bring this charge against these these eleven charges saw a lot of what it needed to see in terms of violating the rules, and I'm glad that they're bringing it forward. Is
1: is it a matter of uh, you say, uh, Michael Teeter, that these you know the bars, are associations, and so forth, they're not really used to dealing with this type of an attack, is that why it has taken so long in so many cases? I mean, here we are two years past, uh, well past, uh, you know, January 6th and, and what uh, Eastman did that day. Why has it taken two years before we're even hearing about charges uh, in front of the uh, state bar out here in California?
3: I think there are a number of reasons. One is that the bars are not set up in this way. They're not set up to deal, address these kind of fundamental problems and these challenges to democracy and the challenge of abusing the legal system. Look, I think it's important to understand that there were 65 lawsuits or so Mm -hmm. uh, after the 2020 election. Most of the lawyers who brought those claims did not think that they were going to prevail in a court of law. They knew that they didn't have real claims. They knew they didn't have the law or the facts. They were using the court system as a political tool, as part of their propaganda. Mm -hmm. And so they got out of these lawsuits what they wanted. The, mm. They didn't lose in their efforts because what you saw was the ultimately the culmination was January 6th. Um, they understood what their purpose was, which was to be able to say at rallies, we filed all these lawsuits. We could say to state legislatures, we filed all these lawsuits. Courts are considering all these allegations of fraud. They could stand up in front of li- landscaping uh, companies in their yes. parking lots and and, ta- and hold press conferences about their lawsuits. And so when they lost these lawsuits, it didn't create any disincentive to continue it because they got out of them what they wanted. And so these, these bar associations are not used to lawyers using the legal system in this way, and they need to get mm. caught up and they need to start thinking about the abuse of the legal system and the abuse of law license in this way. And so it takes that long because mm. partly because the bar associations are not set up. They lack resources to be able to investigate. And then I thir- think the third component of all of it is they didn't want to get ahead of the investigation by the January 6th committee. They wanted to make sure that they were kind of following a little bit behind, uh, not in lockstep with them, and to make sure that they weren't going to get um, jump ahead and charge Eastman with something or charge Giuliani with something when the January 6th committee revealed that maybe they hadn't violated their their obligation. So I think that that's all part of it as well.
1: Is it uh, unlawful in some way or uh, a violation of the oath that is taken before the bar around the country to do exactly what you're saying that they did, to file cases that they knew would not win? But they were basically made, uh, filed for, you know, for PR, so they could make the claim: "Oh, these lawsuits are being filed all over the place. Something must be wrong here. Is 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 there anything actually unlawful uh, or in violation of, you know, ethics, uh, you know, what, whatever you have to uh, do to become a, a member of the bar?
3: Yeah, let me let's take those two things separately because I think they're different standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rules of professional conduct. I uh, demand that lawyers and represent clients not bring claims that lack any basis in law or fact. You have to believe that the claim has some merit. Mm. You don't have to know all the facts. You don't have to be ensure that the law is 100% on your side, but you have to have a good faith claim that the law is on your side. Mm-hmm. You also have a duty of candor to the court. You cannot lie to the court. You cannot misrepresent facts to the court. And you have to have a purpose that's beyond just delay burdening other parties, embarrassing other parties. You have to have a legitimate purpose. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers who brought these claims violated those three rules clearly, as well as, in many cases, additional others. Then there's the question of criminality. Mm -hmm. You know, a judge in California, a federal judge in California, has found that it's more likely than not that John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, that he was speaking about John Eastman, engaged in a criminal conspiracy Mm -hmm. to obstruct Congress. Mm And that, I think, is a separate question. Um, I don't think all the lawyers who are engaged in the efforts here were engaging in criminal conduct. But I think those at the top who are helping orchestrate it, Mm -hmm. who are helping Donald Trump Trump specifically and directly, were engaged in the criminal conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And again, the federal court has already said it's more likely than not that they were.
1: And would any of the uh, charges that are being brought before the state bar out here in California, does that somehow, uh, you know, I guess it's not one or the other, that we wouldn't bring these charges in lieu of criminal charges? Do was any potential criminal indictments against Eastman, that's a separate matter entirely, correct? And, and for that matter, you know, does a hearing uh, like what will presumably happen in California, you know, as Eastman fights to keep his law license, does a hearing like that uh, either help? Or or hurt any such potential criminal charges, or is this such a rare situation that really nobody knows how any of this ends up playing out? Well, I'll
3: say that based on on how he performed before the January 6th committee, John Easton is likely to plead, take the Fifth Amendment and not answer questions. And he has the right mm. in, the, in the state bar process to also invoke the Fifth Amendment. That is pretty telling about what he how he views his conduct, but I think that it won't help or hurt in the criminal aspect in that way. If he were to testify and help justify or explain his conduct, then he very well might face Mm -hmm. uh, the potential that his testimony will then give investigators on the criminal side of the Department of Justice an opportunity to seize on what he says and and invite potential additional criminal charges. uh,
1: Lawyers like uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, they have claimed in their own defense at various uh, hearings around the country, uh, sanctions hearings, and and, uh, in in Giuliani's case, uh, you know, considering disbarment in D.C., they've claimed in their own defense uh, that, you know, they just did not have time to vet all the affidavits and so forth that they had included in their lawsuits to try and steal the election. That you know all, despite all of those claims appearing to be false uh, or have perfectly innocent explanations uh, instead of some you know insidious uh, conspiracy, they said that you know they didn't have time to check it out because of the short time, the the short window that they had to to, to file these challenges back then, right after the election. Does any of that get them off the hook as attorneys?
3: No, there's no, there's no get out of discipline because you didn't have time card that they can play. Mm-hmm. Rules are requiring you to, if you're going to bring actions to, to have a foundation for them, you have to have a basis from law or fact. Mm-hmm. If you're going to present them as facts, then you have to have a basis for presenting them as fact. They didn't say these claims aren't known to us. They didn't say we, we think that eventually we will be able to prove this. They said these facts are true. They asserted them as true. They put, put these affidavits in front of courts. Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, they made baseless claims themselves about facts that were not true. And because of that, they are going to face discipline and they don't get to say that they didn't have an opportunity. And the, of course, the lie in all of that is that they continue to make baseless lies, you know, state baseless lies about the 2020 election. So it clearly, doesn't time doesn't help them um, because they continue to make the same kind of claims that they made before. <laughs>
1: Uh, Michael Teeter, there there were a whole lot of attorneys. Uh, we've sort of mentioned, you know, a handful Giuliani, Powell, uh, Eastman, et cetera, you know, who a lot of people know. But there were actually a whole lot of attorneys who helped him in these schemes, uh, including some who are elected officials, like, for example, Ted Cruz, who I, I believe the uh, 65 Project, your group, has also focused on. He signed on, as I understand it, to one of these lawsuits. Uh, should members of the bar like Ted Cruz, who, you know, was also exercising, he will claim, exercising his duty as a member of the Senate or, or some such. Uh, or I mentioned uh, Republican Attorney General from uh, Florida, Pam Bondi. Uh, there were other attorneys general who signed on or filed these cases. You yourself, you did not file one of these cases, but you yourself were an assistant uh, uh, attorney general in in Utah. Uh, should attorneys general and people like Ted Cruz also be held accountable by bar associations in some fashion for their filings, or were they just doing their jobs as legislators and, and AGs, et cetera?
3: They should be held accountable. Whether they will or not depends on some rule changes that we propose. Uh, the reason for that is that a lot of the state bar associations feel that, that executive branch officials, and that's what attorney, attorneys general are in each state, can't face discipline for their discretionary acts as executive branch officials, and Mm -hmm. so they don't feel um, as bodies of the judiciary that they can hold the executive branch accountable in this way. We'd like to change those rules. We think that any public official who is also licensed to practice Mm. has a duty uh, to abide by the same rules that other lawyers abide by when they are representing clients. Their clients are the people who uh, live in that state, and so they should be held to the same standard. We hope that the rules will change. Um, We don't think that most of the uh, attorneys general who participated in the efforts to to overturn the election uh, necessarily should be able to escape punishment or discipline by saying that I was just a public official. I think that they... Actually, have a heightened
1: duty, if anything, as a public official. Mm. Well, that then that's a great point, and yes, we're looking at you, Ken Paxton, A. G. of Texas, among others. Uh, it's a great point because uh, when you know when attorneys are tried when they face criminal charges, they, as I understand it, have to you know their higher standard is expected of them as uh, members of the bar, members, officers of the court. Can the case be made that an even higher standard should then? And be applied to attorneys general like Ken Paxton and uh, Pam Bondi, and so on and so forth.
3: I think so, and um, I think that it's important to give some kudos to the Texas State Bar, which has brought challenge, which has brought charges against Ken Paxton, and is moving forward with discipline against him for bringing the, the case Texas v. Pennsylvania, which was the state's effort to overturn the election, uh-huh. and Ken Paxton himself is uh, is facing. Um, serious uh, potential consequences for his actions. So Texas recognizes that. And other attorneys general should be held accountable as well.
1: And to be clear, by the way, uh, Ken Paxton has also been facing indictments, uh, criminal indictments in the state of Texas for about seven years for securities fraud. And yet he not only continues to serve as attorney general, he continues to be reelected by the people of Texas as attorney general, which kind of blows my mind, Michael. Uh, You know, if a guy like Ken Paxton ends up being disbarred in the state of Texas for what he did in the twenty twenty election? Can he still continue to serve? Uh, can attorneys general continue to serve even if they're not actually licensed to practice law in the state where they're elected? As far as you know,
3: it depends on the state. Um, but yes, I think the context in Texas is a state where you don't have to have an active law license <laughs> oh, to, be able to, to practice and serve as attorney general. Yeah. Uh,
1: unbelievable. Now, is, uh, coming back to John uh, Eastman, here is is the uh, is it correct that the California State Bar Court? Uh, where Eastman is facing these charges that they could only recommend disbarment, that ultimately the California Supreme Court will have the last word uh, on on whether he actually loses his uh, his law license. And if so, uh, how long would you expect all of this to take to wind its way through all of the various proceedings before he actually does lose his license to practice law if he ultimately does? Because we're already two years on from the uh, original sin here.
3: Right. I think that we're looking at another four to six months before there's a likely outcome. Mm. I think that the California Supreme Court is likely to endorse whatever the outcome is, and if the state bar uh, court recommends discipline, the, the California Supreme Court is very likely to, to follow that lead.
1: You have uh, your group, uh, the uh, 65 Project, has called for changes. You mentioned a few of them. Uh, is there any part of this process that should or could be sped up when it comes to holding attorneys accountable? Or is it uh, better that, you know, uh, people are given the benefit of the doubt that plenty of time is taken so that this sort of thing is not done uh, rashly, that, uh, you know, it it takes the time that it that it takes and everybody gets to make their arguments? Are you guys arguing for it to move faster? Uh, And if so, how would that work?
3: Well, I think there's a big gap between moving rashly and moving uh, uh, and acting, you know, expeditiously. And I think that we fall somewhere in between. Mm. They are not, uh, I think the bars are not taking the time out of a desire to delay, but I think that they are understaffed, under-resourced. I, you know, for example, in Pennsylvania, on one single day, we filed 10 bar complaints. Um, I think that's probably more serious bar complaints and that, you know, each bar complaint was 15 pages. I think most bar complaints they receive are, you know, a single page from a disgruntled client or, Mm. you know, another party. And so they're not used to the volume that we presented them with. They, they're understaffed and they're trying to take the time to investigate and do their due diligence. That's, um, applaudable. The problem is that these, we have a. You know, a two-year election cycle, and these lawyers need to learn that mm-hmm. there are consequences to their actions—not just for them, but for other lawyers who want, who might take up the call from Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell the next time there's an election. Mm-hmm. And so, we need to make sure that there's a faster process. Mm. I hope that um, we're going to be able to accomplish that. Some of that's about resources. Some of that's about prioritizing these complaints when they come in. But we also have seen that even absent. Uh, quick measures and actions by the bar, that there is still a deterrent effect that's happening. There were hundreds of election deniers who were running for office in the 2022 midterm mm. elections. Many of them lost. And yet we only had a handful of lawsuits, primarily in Arizona. And one of the things that we're proudest of at the 65 Project is that when Carrie Lake was asked about it, she said that she had attorneys who were walking away because <laughs> yes. groups like ours, the left, were threatening them with the ability to make a living and practice law and that. Eventually, uh, she said, "I'll take anybody because <laughs> so many lawyers were afraid of losing their law license because of our group." And so we've had a turn effect, and so that part is positive.
1: That is positive. That is good news. Uh, it is still amazing, though. It still kind of blows my mind that uh, you know I mentioned in the in the first segment of the show how Donald Trump is still able to find people who are willing to. Uh, who are willing to f- you know file on his behalf it ends up costing them all kinds of money they're probably going to lose their license people like Alina Haba and so forth in that uh dumb suit where now she and Trump have been uh, fined a million dollars uh f- for filing their frivolous suit but he's still able to find people it- it's amazing to me uh, you know b- attorneys uh finally before well, MAGA has yeah.
3: I'm sorry, MAGA has a new meaning now, which is making attorneys get attorneys.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well done. Uh, Michael Teeter. before I let you go, there there are so, are so many Trump attorneys. Uh, we named a bunch of them that – or a number of them that people do know, the Giuliani's, the Powell's, the Paxton, Paxton's, the uh, so forth, uh, the Bondi's. Has, the, has there been um, – Let's not let – I don't want to let let him slide below the radar. Is there anyone else, before I let you go, uh, who you'd like to name, uh, who bar associations and potential criminal investigators ought to be looking at, but it's unclear if they are at this point?
3: Well, we filed a complaint against someone named Ken Cheeseborough, who uh, was very active, actually wrote the first memo before uh, John Eastman did. Yep. That was focused on uh, the January 6th events and the efforts to overturn the – the Electoral Count Act. And so I think that he's a he's a likely culprit in all this. Um, and then we're going to be filing some bar complaints in the next couple of weeks against the attorneys who were participating in the Arizona lawsuits, as well as attorneys who are, have still to date escaped flown under the radar. And so we're going to be bringing them to light.
1: Thank you for doing that, sir. It is greatly appreciated. Michael Teeter is the managing director at The uh, 65 Project. You can get more information on what they do at The65Project.com. That's 65, the number 65, The65Project.com. Again, they are a uh, bipartisan uh, group working to bring accountability to these attorneys who are undermining democracy. And by the way, Michael, I I didn't ask and I don't know and actually I don't care, but I think it's enlightening. You were – Assistant uh, 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 Attorney General in Utah, I'm assuming that's because you were a Republican?
3: I am not a Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a a civil servant, and Mm -hmm. so I was not a Republican, but I have filed a bar complaint against my former boss.
2: So, there you have
1: it. There you go. I just want to underscore uh, that this really is not about Republicans or Democrats. This is about, in my opinion, democracy and the rule of law. You can find, uh, as I said, uh, them at the65project.com. You can also find them on Twitter at Six 65project. Michael Teeter, please stay in touch. We'd love to have you back to talk about all of this as it moves forward. You guys are doing uh, God's work there. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And thanks for joining us today on the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. You thanks, bet. Somebody. All right. We will uh, take a quick break and come back with uh, since it's like accountability day here on the broadcast for some reason, because I think every day is accountability day on the broadcast of late. A story, a new story for new criminal trouble for, yes, Donald Trump in the great state of New York. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
0: Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com/donate, and thanks.
1: Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. I didn't. I I figured we weren't going to have a lot of time, uh, and I, well, well, we have time. I don't know to maybe sneak in a caller or two. Eight one 985 KPFK. 818 they call fast, nine eight five five seven three five. Yeah, they will have to call fast. But as uh, you said, uh, a caller wanted me to address why Attorney General Merrick Garland.
0: It's taking is, so long. I mean, because it's obviously it's a massive, probably I think it's the biggest investigation the Department of Justice has ever undertaken, the investigation into January 6th, the insurrection and everything leading up to it and coming after it. So I, I think this caller was interested in why does it take so long to bring indictments against the higher up people uh, that are part of the insurrection?
1: Well, I think you just answered it brilliantly, Toy. And <laughs> This is the largest criminal investigation that the Department of Justice has ever undertaken. And, by the way, add on top of that, uh, they would be indicting a president of the United States with criminal charges, which has never been done before. And there's an old saying that I will botch about, you know, if you're uh, going to attack the king, you better kill the king.
0: You better not miss. You get
1: one shot at it. And, uh, you know, if they are going to bring charges against a sitting president, well, you—not a sitting president, a former president, perhaps a future president—you damn well better make sure you have all of your ducks in a row.
0: Yeah, I mean, it has to be almost a slam dunk in a way that a jury—because remember, if I do recall, a jury has—a criminal trial has a higher burden of proof than a civil trial.
1: Uh, Yeah, it does. That's right. And so, uh, you know, you you have to get this right. That said, you know, criminal cases, even simple ones, take a while. This is a very, very complex one. So, you know, remember, there were no charges brought in uh, Watergate, I believe, until three years after uh, Nixon had left office. Well, we're only two years after Donald Trump has left office. That said, some news out of uh, New York, specifically Manhattan, specifically the Manhattan District Attorney's Office today. Uh, The D.A., according to The New York Times, uh, has begun presenting evidence to a criminal grand jury about Donald J. Trump's role In paying hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels before his 2016 presidential campaign, to which I would add, well, that's about damn time laying the groundwork for potential potential criminal charges against the former president in the coming months in New York. That, according to people with knowledge of the matter, the grand jury was recently impaneled. And the beginning of witness testimony represents a clear signal that the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, is nearing a decision about whether to charge Mr. Trump. Did I mention about damn time? Uh, On Monday, one of the witnesses was seen with his lawyer entering the building in Lower Manhattan, where the grand jury is sitting. The witness is David Pecker. Yes, that's his name. Does it ring a bell? He's the former publisher of the National Enquirer, the tabloid that helped broker the hush money deal with the uh, porn star Stormy Daniels in the first place. This is the case that Donald Trump's. Uh, former attorney Michael Cohen already went to prison for after he pleaded guilty to federal charges in what the uh, prosecutors at the time characterized as a conspiracy that was, quote, directed by Donald Trump. Michael Cohen went to jail for that. Trump has never been charged at the federal level or any level uh, for the crimes involved there at the federal level, they were campaign finance uh, charges that Michael Cohen ended up doing almost two years for because he's an attorney and he's supposed to know better. So after previously declining to bring charges against Trump for bank tax and insurance fraud, uh, as uh, District Attorney uh brags, predecessor, Cyrus Vance, was prepared to do before Vance left office at the beginning of last year. Uh, It looks like Bragg has now decided he may be able to bring criminal charges after all, at least on this particular crime of Trump's Uh, in the meantime, even as New York State Attorney General Letitia James presses forward with her own $250 million lawsuit, a civil bank tax and insurance fraud case against Trump against his company and against his three grown children, Eric, Don Jr. and Ivanka. It also comes just weeks after Bragg's office was able to secure 17 uh, guilty verdicts from a jury in a criminal fraud trial against Trump's company, the Trump Organization. Nobody went to jail for that, um, but uh, there was a, a guilty plea on 15 counts by the Trump Organization's longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weiselberg, He is now currently spending a few months on Rikers, Rikers Island. He got off pretty easy because he testified, agreed to testify against uh, the company. But if criminal charges are now brought against Trump in the Stormy Daniels case in New York, that could send Donald Trump to Rikers Island as well in the future. Not to get your hopes up. But uh, I think uh, there would be uh, some uh, four years max for the particular charges that Bragg seems to be focusing in on. So, hey, fingers crossed. Hopefully they'll, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to Trump, they will let him out to testify in the other criminal cases that he may be facing at the very same time in the state of Georgia, at the federal level, if Garland ever brings charges there. Uh, For his uh, January 6th insurrection, for stealing hundreds of classified documents from the White House upon leaving office.
0: So many investigations, so little time. It sounds like there's going to be several months worth of... of investigations and ongoing probes until we actually get any kind of resolution to any of these things like in Georgia or, mm-hmm. you know, Trump going to Rikers, which I think is highly unlikely. I think they'll, you know, if it goes that far, that they'll probably That's... let him do some kind of like in-house arrest if it ever gets that far. And I'm not sure it will.
1: That's just because you're a negative Nellie. Desi I am Doyen. cynical. I will say that. Uh, thank you to our producer, uh, Desi Doyen, or Negative Nelly, as we call her. If uh, all As all of this does move forward, we will, of course, be here to cover it for you and with you on the broadcast. So my thanks to Desi. My thanks to our board op, Yout Orozco. Good to see you back, my friend. We missed you. Uh, Also to my guest today, Michael Teeter of The 65 Project, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where we are now in our 20th year of muckraking and troublemaking. Thanks for uh, helping us get here. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. Oh, and also on the Mastodons. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
2: this day in labor history, the year was 2011. That was the day California first celebrated its state holiday, known as Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution. Born on January 30th, 1919, Fred Korematsu was among those victimized by President Roosevelt's wartime executive order 9066, mandating Japanese-American internment. Born in Oakland, California, Korematsu worked as a shipyard welder. He was arrested and eventually Convicted After refusing to report to authorities for internment, the ACLU took up his case, hoping to test the legality of 9066. Korematsu and his family were relocated to the Central Utah Wars Relocation Center in Topaz, Utah. There, he worked eight hours a day for $12 a month and waited for his case to travel through the legal system. It eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court. In Korematsu v. United States, the court held that compulsory exclusion, though constitutionally suspect, is justified during circumstances of emergency and peril. After his release, Kuromatsu worked odd jobs and faced discrimination and wage theft. He eventually resettled in Oakland with his wife and children. In 1983, Korematsu's conviction was finally vacated. Fifteen years later, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He became a tireless activist for civil liberties and worked to ensure internment could never happen again. Before his death in 2005, he served on the Constitution Project's Liberty and Security Committee. He warned, quote, no one should ever be locked away simply because they share the same race, ethnicity, or or religion as a spy or terrorist. If that principle was not learned from the internment of Japanese Americans, then these are very dangerous times for our democracy. Fred Korematsu Day is also celebrated in Hawaii, Virginia, and Florida.